It is a delight to be with you this morning, Grace Spring. And let me also encourage you um, for giving your pastor sabbatical. I work with a lot of pastors, uh, probably three to four hundred pastors in the southeast Michigan area, and uh, many of them are just beat up and burnt out. Uh, COVID was very, very hard for pastors. And so what, you're, what you've done for your pastors really, really been good. Of, of all the pastors we work with through Barnabas Ministries, uh, none of them have quit during this season. But I'll bet everyone has thought about it. And so uh, thank you for the way you've uh, come alongside your pastor and believed in him and his need to uh, seek and thirst after the righteousness of God and get re- recharged. So well done. Uh, Barnabas Ministries is just that. We just encourage pastors through uh, support groups, mentor groups, uh, uh, encouragement groups, retreats, uh, podcasts, and anything else that's needed. So we're thankful to, uh, to be a part of that. I'm glad to be with you today. Are you glad you're here today? Yes. Great. I hope I do a good enough. I'm scheduled to be here next week. And, uh, and so if I mess up today, just uh, tell Pastor Brian... Give the guy another chance, okay? And I'll be back next week. I'm always, uh, my wife would love to be with you, with us here today. She's traveling back from a wedding in Wisconsin, a family wedding, so uh, hopefully she'll be here next week. Whenever I come to a new place, I'm always uh, concerned that I use the right language and words, the meanings of words have changed so much in the last few years. It reminded me of the story of the the mother who was traveling with her uh, young son, in Texas, and she, uh, she said to him, uh, now in Texas, you be respectful of all people. And she said, sure. So he's, his, her son saw a cowboy, and he said to his mom, 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 look at that bull-legged cowboy. And she corrected him. She said, that could be very offensive to him. I don't want you to speak like that anymore. And in fact, if you do, I'm gonna lock you up in our hotel room with all of Shakespeare's writings until you can learn how to speak correctly. Well, he's a little boy, and it wasn't long. The same day, he saw another cowboy. He said, Mommy, Mommy, there's another bull-legged cowboy. Sure enough, she put, took him back to the hotel, put him in, in the room with all of Shakespeare's writings, and said, you're going to stay here until you learn how to speak correctly. A day later, he said, I'm ready. So she was very concerned about, did he learn? Has he, and, and it wasn't long before the test was answered. He saw a cowboy, he looked at the cowboy, looked at his mom and said, tally-ho, what men are these that wear their legs in parentheses? <laughs> so I, I hope to use the right words today in the right language. Um, would you join me in your Bibles, if you have them, in Romans chapter 11? Romans chapter 11, I'm delighted to be a part of this series on a summer of intentionality and looking at the topic of worship. Um, And so I have one of the greatest passages of all Scripture, hopefully to unfold to you today in a fresh way, so that you'll have a greater sense of awe and respect for God. Romans chapter 11, let me give you a little bit of the background of the context. The context is so important in studying any passage of Scripture, but I think especially this passage. The Apostle Paul was writing to the Roman believers And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's taking them on this theological journey. So in chapter 1, he's reminding them that all men are unrighteous. And yet, God has revealed himself and his reality, his existence through uh, the word, through conscience, 
through creation so that no man has any excuse. Man is totally without excuse. He reminds us in chapter 2 that God is a righteous judge. Reminds us in chapter 3 about the universal nature of sin. All of sin comes short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. He goes on to talk about the spiritual war that we're living in. He reminds us in chapter 5 but that we have, we're justified by faith. Therefore, we have peace with God. In chapter 5, a great chapter of the book of Romans. Chapter 6, we're reminded that we're free from the law and we're free from sin. Chapter 7, I think I could have written. Maybe you as well. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, those are the things I do. Have there been times in your life you could have written that chapter? How many? Yeah. And then chapter 8. Like, wow, it's all building up. And you get to chapter 8. And, and J.I. Packer, one of the great American theologians, once said that, that chapter 8 is the greatest chapter of the greatest book of the Bible. Romans chapter 8. It's, it's really a highlight reel of grace. God's grace in our lives. And you look at the, the, the grace for for those who in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. We're called sons. We're called heirs. He even talks about the trials. When we go through difficult times, we can easily remember that the sufferings of this present world aren't worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. He talks about we groan, like with all creation groaning, until that day when we see Jesus face to face. But until then, we have the promise of his Holy Spirit who's praying for us, verse 26 of chapter 8, when we don't even know how to form the words, we don't know what to say, because the pain perhaps is so great. He, and then he closes off chapter 8 with those words, nothing can separate us from the love of God. If you're looking for a favorite chapter in the Bible, I would highly recommend Romans chapter 8. And then he shifts to chapters 9, 10, and 11, which are kind of a block where he's answering the question, is there a future for Israel? For Jesus came unto his own, and his own received in him not. So the, the nation of Israel, the community of faith, didn't believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah. Was there a plan for Israel after this rejection? The answer comes through those chapters, absolutely yes. Now, what we need to notice about the, uh, the division of Paul's writings, that many of his books are divided into two sections. The first section is what I just described. It's theological. The second section is more practical. Instructions on how we're to live and how we're to obey based on all of the things we've learned. And that's what you find in, for example, the book of Ephesians. Chapters 1 through 3, get this. And then chapter 4, 5, and 6... Uh, practical things. Live in now in light of this. Walk worthy of profession in which you are called. In Romans, the division comes after chapter 11. In chapter 12, it begins those verses we hope to look at next week. I beseech you therefore, brother, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. So verses 1 and 2 as a response to standing in awe of God. What we're going to look at today is the last section of this theological section, and it's called a doxology. A doxa, just the word glory. It's an opportunity of glory to God. And so you find that doxology is a bridge 
between the theological section and the practical section. All theology needs to end in doxology. Theology should cause us to worship. Theology should cause us to sing. If there's a divorce between theology and worship, we're in trouble. John Stott once wrote, he said, worship without theology is bound to generate, degenerate into idolatry. So let's look at these verses and understand the best we can that as we know God, we stand in awe of him, his greatness and his glory. Let me read uh, the whole section, verses 33 through 36, and then we'll, we'll break it down. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he may be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. The Apostle Paul, after 11 chapters of God's goodness, culminating really in chapter 8, now with almost inexpressible awe, talks about the greatness of God. Oh, the depth of the wisdom and the riches of the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgment and his ways beyond tracing. Almost um, with exuberance, he's saying, who, can you believe it? Who would have ever thought that God could have taken in some way the rejection of his people and turned it into the possibility of salvation and a blessing to Jew and Gentile alike for the entire world? And this was all done, not as a plan B, but before the world began. And so he's talking about the greatness of our God. So God is great in his wisdom. Uh, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. The, The writer Paul also in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 writes these words. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise. They are futile. 1 Corinthians 3, 19 and 20. A man started coming to our church many years ago. And he would sit in the second row and we got to know each other. He was a professor at a local university, a brilliant scientist who did not know Jesus yet. And as we began to talk, we've had many talks in my office. And I remember the one day he reminded me again, as a scientist, that he's discovered things in his laboratory that no man has ever found before. And, and yet, and so there was a, a level of pride, there was a level of intelligence, and those tied together blinded him to the wisdom and the knowledge of God. I mentioned to him one day after he reminded me of that, I said, Carl, you've, you know, you've not discovered anything that God didn't already know. You may have discovered things that no other man has found. And I would argue that he didn't even discover those. God revealed them. God reveals. And he reveals to the just and to the unjust. To my knowledge, my friend has still not come to know Jesus as a Savior. I think it's his own pride and his wisdom and his knowledge that's blinding him to a God who's so much greater, who's so much bigger, who has an unbelievably great plan for him. God is great in his wisdom. I remember he, 
uh, it was probably three or four Fourth of Julys ago. My wife and I were up north, and it was 10 o'clock at night, and, and it was the Fourth of July fireworks down by the lake. So I said, let's go. She said, you go ahead. I'm kind of tired. And so she'd seen fireworks before, apparently. So, so I went down and joined the crowd on the side of a hill, and the, the fireworks were being shown over the lake. And it was spectacular. It went probably 25 minutes, uh, maybe 30 minutes, and it ended with the grand finale, with the sky just lit up and, you know, uh, going off simultaneously, and, and it was absolutely beautiful, breathtaking. But that was the grand finale. It was over. People were starting to pick up their lawn chairs. And I just stood there waiting for the, the, the crowd to kind of dissipate. And I looked up in the sky, and the smoke from the fireworks was clearing to show the brilliance of God's fireworks, the moon and the stars. And it was, it was out in the country. It was, you didn't have the city lights to... And it was absolutely breathtaking. Oh, the depth of the wisdom and knowledge of God. We live in a galaxy that's called the Milky Way galaxy. And scientists tell us there are 100 billion stars. We're singing about that today. 100 billion stars in our galaxy. Can you imagine? Have you ever heard those television or radio commercials, I guess I've heard, where you want to give somebody a gift, name a star after them. And I thought, there may be something legitimate, but it just sounds illegitimate to me, okay? I thought, I'm going to name a star after you, and I'd have to buy you a gift. And you see and say, uh, where's my star? I said, that one there. Yeah. That one? No, the one just to the left of it. That's your star. Um, and you never run out of gifts. Because you never run out of stars. A hundred billion stars in our galaxy. But scientists also tell us there are two trillion galaxies. They may not all be uniform like ours, so it's hard to extrapolate the number of stars. But just using that two trillion, multiplying times a hundred billion, and then with the, 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 the advanced uh, advancement in, in the technology of the telescopes, scientists are, are guessing, a Yale scientist a few years ago suggested now that we see about 300 sextrillion stars. 300 sextrillion stars. You say, why is that important? Because the Bible tells us in the book of Isaiah, let me read the verses, Isaiah chapter 40. He says in these verses, To whom will, then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number. We can't number them, but God can. He goes on to say, um, He brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name. We can't number what God can name. By his greatness, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Not one is missing. God is great. 300 sextrillion stars, it's like three with like 23 zeros behind it. That's how many stars. Compare that to the fireworks finale. 
The heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament shows his handiwork. God is great in his wisdom. No one can compare. No one can compare. God is also great in his ways. Notice the last part of verse uh, 33. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. He uses two words here to describe the ways of God, different than the wisdom of God. The ways of, of God are how God fleshes out his wisdom in our lives, how he does things. He said, he uses two words. One of them is unfathomable, and the other one is unsearchable. They're translated in different ways in, our, in your text. Unfathomable. Years ago, my wife and I were on a cruise, and we took one of those uh, snorkeling uh, excursions. So we went out to a reef, and we got our snorkel gear on, and we were going to go onto this reef and see these beautiful um, structures and fish and so forth, the colorful fish. And, but the instructor advised us, be careful when you swim over there because that's the wall. Well, what's the wall? It's where the ocean floor drops down 2,000 feet. So you're snorkeling in, I don't know, 12, 15 feet of water on the reef, and then all of a sudden, there's the depth. And when I think of the wisdom of God and the ways of God, I think I don't have the equipment to go to his depths. I don't. If I drop my watch over the wall, it's gone. It's gone. No one's going to get it. I'm certainly not going to get it with my snorkel gear. And that's what, we're, that's what we're playing with as human beings. We're finite. And he's not. God is unlimited in his wisdom. He's unlimited in his ways. His ways are beyond tracing. I uh, asked Siri last night to give me directions to um, Gray Spring. I live just on the other side of Clarkston. So I knew how much time it was going to take. And so I planned this morning, got up, and I came down 69. And I got off at a place called Belleville. Has anybody ever heard of Belleville? <laughs> and then, you, then I just followed the directions go six miles and take this and then another two miles and another two miles and then it started being in four tenths of a mile take a right and then four tenths of a mile take a left I could not tell you how I got here this morning <laughs> and there's there's no way there's no I could I could find my way back without Siri that's what the that's what it means his ways are beyond tracing you can't figure it out. His ways are inscrutable. I'm going to go out on a limb this morning and, and, and guess that probably all of you made it through a whole week without using the word inscrutable. <laughs> Am I right? And it just means not knowable. Aren't you glad that God is a scrutable God? In other words, he's a knowable God. He wants to be known, and he's gone to great lengths through revelation so that we might know him. And Jeremiah said in, in, in chapter 9, he said, let the, not the wealthy man boast in his, his wealth or the rich man boast in his wealth, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he knows me. God wants to be known. 
but he, his ways are inscrutable. We have an inscrutable God who works in inscrutable ways. Are you with me yet? This will be on the test at all. You don't even have to understand inscrutable, okay? He works in inscrutable ways. The author of Ecclesiastes, I think is Solomon, wrote these words and he says, the will of God, the ways of God, are a mystery. Like how it's how the bones of a baby are formed in its mother's womb. Who can explain it? Inscrutable. I love that about God. Many years ago, <clears throat> it was 2005, we were hiring a, a children's pastor for our church and the candidates had been narrowed down to one and he was flying in from Seattle for his last interview. And I had the last interview with him. And it was Saturday night after uh, our evening service. His name was Daryl. We went out to eat. Now, he had answered all the questions correctly already, so I just wanted to get to know him. So I said, Daryl, what do you do for your hobbies? I was, I was thinking he would say, well, I like to ski or I like to collect stamps or I like motorcycles or golf or whatever. I wasn't prepared for his answer. He says, I like to go to Thailand. I said, well, Daryl, what do you do in Thailand? And he began to talk to me about the, the horrible story of human trafficking in Thailand, where little children, I'll not get into details, but are just ripped away, sometimes given away by their families for money. And he said, uh, I, I can go there. There's an industrial area of Bangkok where they auction off children. Can you imagine? He said, I can buy a little boy or a little girl for $300. If they knew what I was doing, they'd kill me on the spot. And he said, I take that little girl, I get in a taxi and go way up into the mountains where I leave him at an orphanage. And he said, I've done that 110 times. I thought, wow. We began to, I began to ask more questions about that. We didn't end up hiring Daryl. Um, we uh, uh, decided on a different individual. But I couldn't get that story off my mind, so maybe a couple of weeks later, three weeks later in a message, um, I just brought that up. And people came up after me after the service and said, well, Pastor Doug, what are we going to do about that? I said, I don't know. What do you think? we got to do something. And so we sent a team over there, and the team came back, having done a report, and said, we can't do what Daryl's doing. It's too dangerous, and the recidivism rate is too high. But what we can do is be on the prevention side of it. And they recommended that we work with a man who heads up from the Aka Hill tribes in northern Thailand. Long story short, we partnered with him. We uh, uh, bought some property, 16 acres. We built a beautiful, beautiful orphanage. And I was over there for the dedication of the orphanage, and I called Daryl, this man we didn't hire, and asked him to come along. This was his vision. He came along, we stood next to each other as hundreds of people were gathered, and we were singing the song, How Great Thou Art, in four different languages at the same time. I stood and I wept. Little, 25 kids were ready to move in the first day. And they had sung a song that they had learned the night before. 
And it was beautiful. They did some of it in English, some of it in Thai, and some of it in Aka. But remember those words, and we'll never be lonely again. I wept, and then it hit me. Not how wonderful our church was for doing this. It hit me that God had a master plan that I didn't understand. That maybe, maybe as one of the Aka soldiers was fighting in a war in Myanmar that he didn't want to be a part of, but because they had no citizenship rights, he was constricted into that army. And as he shot, perhaps lying in the street, dying, there may have been a little prayer that went up and said, Lord, if you're real, take care of my kids. I don't know if that's what happened, but I wouldn't be surprised. And God could have done it in a thousand ways, but perhaps he spoke to the heart of a man in Seattle to apply for a job in Troy, Michigan that he didn't get, but he shared a message with people 8,000 miles away who wanted to step up and build an orphanage where not only those kids were helped, but hundreds have come to know Jesus as Savior. That's how God works. His ways, his ways are beyond tracing. And so now the Apostle Paul is going to ask three rhetorical questions. The, and let's go through these quickly. Uh, who has known the mind of the Lord? Anybody? The rhetorical questions in the sense that the answer is obvious so that we don't need to verbalize the answer. But if we had to, we would say no one. No one knows the mind of the Lord until God chooses to reveal it. And we have that in his word. There are things that I'd like to know that aren't in the word. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says the secret things belong to the Lord our God. I cling to that. I've claimed Deuteronomy 29, 29 so often that what I don't understand, I have to trust him for. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Who's, not, who's known the mind of the Lord? No one until God chooses to reveal it. The second question, who has been his counselor? I've tried. How about you? There have been times I've prayed. It may go something like this. God, we've got a problem. And here's how you could solve it. Has anybody ever prayed like that? Or you're, maybe you're much more mature than I am. But I've laid it out for the Lord. I've thought it through. I've done the pros and cons. This is our best solution. I can't do it, but I know you can. And God almost always answers my prayer. But he's never taken my counsel and done it the way I wanted him to do it. Never. Who's been his counselor? Notice Isaiah chapter 40, verses 13 and 14, where it says, Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his course? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the way of understanding? Um, and then Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. For, for unto us a child is born, to us, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and it be called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. 
Eight centuries before Jesus came, Isaiah the prophet said, there's one coming, and this is who he is. Some say there are five names, most say there are four, because those first two go together. Wonderful counsel, the word wonderful, the way it's translated means amazing, astonishing, hard to explain. Amazing, astonishing, hard to explain. Uh, that was the word that was used in Judges chapter 13, verse 18, where uh, Samson was going to, uh, 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 Gideon. I better read the passage. It was an early morning. Judges chapter 13 and verse 18. I think. Let me read. And the angel said, with regards to the birth of Samson, and Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Samson's father, what is your name so that when your words come true, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? Amazing, astonishing, hard to explain. Couple that with counselor, the problem solver. When Jesus came, in my reading of the Gospels, he's never called the wonderful counselor but he did it all the time. He solved people's problems in amazing, astonishing, hard to explain ways. Just go through the gospel. And he'll say to a lady, uh, go and sin no more. He'll say to a man who is blind or has leprosy. I mean, story after story after story, he solved their problems in amazing, astonishing, hard to explain ways. Who's been his counselor? God has never been in a position where he wrings his hands and said, I don't know what to do. I wish I could call a friend or pull the audience, but I don't know what to do. Never. The third question, who is first given a gift that he may be repaid? Who is given a gift that he may be repaid? Psalm 24 verse 1 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. God is complete. Paul writes to the Colossian believers, and he says, in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and we are complete in him. He needs nothing from us. Many years ago, a friend of mine was, uh, he was a philanthropist. He was giving lots of Christian philanthropy, giving lots of money away to Christian organizations. Uh, the school that I was teaching at was um, one of his... Uh, choice uh, uh, places to give and gave hundreds of thousands of dollars away to Christian organizations, camps, Christian schools every year. And then his double life was discovered and realized he'd been doing a lot of bad things, including having his wife killed. He went to prison and while he was in prison, he said to his pastor who came to visit him, he said, Pastor, I've done so much for God. I've given so much to him. I thought he'd take better care of me. He recently died in prison. God doesn't need anything we have to give. Have we given anything to God that God is duty-bound to give back to us? No. Everything we have is from a God who wants to give and loves to give. And so, with those three questions being answered, no, 
Then we go to the second part of this, standing all not only of his greatness, but of his glory, verse 36. And I'm just going to be able to, ha- I just have time to read through a couple things here. God is the source of all things. Notice these, verse 36, for from him, he is the source of all things. Uh, Colossians chapter 1 tells us, John chapter 1 tells us this, Revelation chapter 4. God is the sustainer of all things, and through him, Without God, Colossians chapter 1 tells us that God holds all things together. Without him, this world would disintegrate. If, if, if God would just take his hand off the controls for a second, but he has and he doesn't because God is the sustainer of all things and God is the purpose of all things. Notice what it says, and, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I had dinner with, with a friend of mine uh, just in the last week, and he's, he's, a, he's given to a lot of different Christian causes and, and institutions as well. But whenever they ask him, do you want your name on that building? He said, no. Put in a, put in a, a stone in the corner that says, to God be the glory. And that's happened many, many, many times. So he's telling me the story that his alma mater was redoing a big university here in the, in the state, was redoing their men's hockey room, and they'd asked him for a donation for the renovation. He said, sure. And then they said, well, there are 30 lockers in there. We want to put your name on one of the lockers. He said, no, put to God be the glory. And they, they came back to him and said, we can't do that. We can't put to God be the glory on a locker. Well, then, then he said, well, just return the money. And they said, well, well, wait a minute. What if we put, to God be the glory, foundation? And so if you'll go to a locker room at that university, when the renovation is finished, you'll see a locker that says, to God be the glory, foundation. Folks, that's our goal. That's the goal of Grace Spring, to recognize that Jesus is the center of all things, that God is the center of things, of him and through him and to him. Our goal can be summarized in the words of the old Chris Tomlin song. May the glory of your name be the passion of the church. That our goal is not to be the biggest or not to be the best. Our goal is simply to bring him glory. And if we bring him glory, that's all that he asks. By the way, that's also the goal of our lives. That each of us as individuals, and we woke up this morning, we had our to-do list. Maybe you did it last night. These are the things you want to accomplish today, and you're going to check off worship service at Grace Spring and go on to the next lunch at McDonald's. Check it off. I hope you have a better to-do list. <laughs> but you know what? You get up this morning, and one overall goal should have been at the forefront. Today, Lord, may I bring you glory. May the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, the deeds that I do, may they bring you glory today. If we could live like that. I've asked you three rhetorical questions. Can I ask you three non-rhetorical questions? The first one, do you know God? through his son Jesus. Do you know God through his son Jesus? 
You can't stand in awe of one you don't know, nor should you reject the one you don't know. If you don't know Jesus yet, may I encourage you <coughs> to put your faith and trust in him. If you don't know Jesus yet, if you don't know God yet through Jesus, you have an appointment one day to be with him that you're not ready for. I say that kindly. You're just not ready for it. And you want to know Jesus. Secondly, and by the way, at the close of the service today, there'll be friends here at the front who would be happy to explain that in more detail, how you can know the Lord Jesus as your Savior. Secondly, do you know you know God well enough to stand in awe of him? May I suggest kindly that if you don't stand in awe of God, you don't know him well enough. You don't know him well enough. You can get to know him through the word, but remember, Jesus is not words on a page. Jesus is a person. And he wants to walk with you and he wants to talk with you. He wants to go with you from day to day. He wants to, he knows his wisdom is infinite. He knows the hairs of your head. To know him better. You may want to get in the group. You may want to get into the word on a regular basis, but practicing the presence of God. And then thirdly, do you know him well enough to trust him when you don't understand? When you don't understand what's going on in your life, when the, you prayed for the cancer to go away and it hasn't, do you know him well enough to trust him? These are non-rhetorical questions. And you can't answer them as a church. You have to answer them as people, individuals. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us a, a hunger and a thirst to know you better. Father, I pray that you reveal yourself, draw people to yourself today. And Father, may we know you so well that we stand in awe of you. In Jesus' name, amen. The songwriter put it so well that he said, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. We cling to the cross today and we celebrate communion as a church. Paul in 1 Corinthians instructs us to look in three directions, to look back. And may we never forget the centerpiece of human history when Jesus died that we might live. He says, we also look ahead. Do this until, you, until I come again. And then he says, look in and examine ourselves and confess any sins that we have. I think it was Steve Brown who once wrote that the world drinks to forget, the church drinks to remember. Remember the, the sacrifice of Jesus. Allow me to pray, thanking God, and you pray while you're there, in your seat if you would. And at the close of the prayer, we encourage you, invite you to go to the different stations and partake of the elements. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the cross. Without the cross, we were dead in our sins, but with the cross, Father, there's life, there's hope, there's joy. Father, may we never forget what Jesus has done for us. We love you so much. In 
in Jesus' name.